Wow. Um, John Newton's story and um, that hymn are a great introduction to uh, this scripture passage where the Apostle Paul is addressing the subject matter of slavery. First Timothy chapter six, verses one through six, and then we'll go on to a passage in Ephesians. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And then from Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, open up our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, and may that truth penetrate deeply. Uh, may you work that transformation in our lives that we so earnestly need and which your spirit so faithfully works under the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So last week's message was really a, a lengthy preface and introduction to this morning's message. This passage where the subject that Paul addresses is that of Christian slaves. I've also added this passage from Ephesians so that we can have further scriptural background and to make it clear that Paul did not fail to address both sides of the issues of slavery. Uh, as First Timothy is written to Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus, so the book of Ephesians, written to the entire church flock. And the Apostle Paul has written to both sides of the issue. My concern in the last message and this morning is to make sure that we understand Paul's writings here in their proper historical, theological, and moral context. I want us to see that Paul is truthfully and faithfully a proper voice, a faithful voice of Jesus Christ, that what Paul says, Jesus says. Now, historically, then, the Roman Empire had its culture, like every other culture of the ancient world, a culture that was very dependent upon slavery. Slavery was a social and economic norm in the ancient world in so many places. Uh, you can think about Egypt. Uh, you couldn't build those pyramids without a lot of slave labor. But along with slavery, the Roman Empire practiced a cultural morality that I described last week as essentially being quid pro quo. That is, something for something. 
uh, you would treat others beneficially because then you would get that treatment in response. Uh, you would expect that treatment in response. And that's why you would treat others well, because of the expectation that they were under a certain obligation to treat you in the same way. Now, although I didn't mention this last week, uh, Jesus does refer to this quid pro quo kind of morality. Uh, he does so in Matthew 5, verses 46 to 48 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's exhorting his followers this way. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That is, if you do a quid pro quo kind of love, if you love those who love you, what is your reward from God? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So, quid pro quo. That was the cultural and social normative status quo in the Roman Empire, giving something in order to receive something in return. And that genuinely and truly shaped the culture. Uh, it took away any motivation for true charity. That is to say, to have any true compassion or caring for others who could not help you in return. In other words, people would value other human beings only when they could be a benefit back to you. Uh, it's what they could do for you that created their benefit or their value or their significance or importance in your life. I hope you see parallels to our culture today because we very much are gripped by a quid pro quo kind of morality in our own country. Now, this moral status quo within the Roman Empire, uh, that's important for us to understand as a proper background or the actual background, moral background, to what Paula is going to write about here in terms of addressing slavery. Because here's the point, we don't find in the New Testament any direct and outright rejection of slavery. Rather, we find Paul telling slaves and masters how they are to treat one another as Christians, and it's not according to quid pro quo. So Paul says here in verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And in Ephesians 6, verse 9, masters, do the same to them, that is to your slaves, and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there's no partiality with him. So in teaching this way, Paul is following Jesus. Jesus taught a code of morality and conduct that goes beyond quid pro quo. Jesus taught a kind of love that does not depend upon getting something back. We see this in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So Jesus says to love and to do good and to lend, expecting nothing in return. Now that, again, is the kind of love that goes beyond quid pro quo. That's the love that Jesus demonstrated in his own mission as the Savior and Redeemer. Now I nicknamed this approach, this moral code, the I am third moral code. It comes out of what Jesus said about the two greatest commandments. The first and greatest of these 
is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. That makes God of first importance. And then Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That makes your neighbor of second importance. But when we do this, when we make God of first importance and we make our neighbor of second importance, then we've placed ourselves in third place. That is the I am third moral code. But this is precisely how Jesus lived his life in order to die for us. He lived in this third place ranking. It's what Paul teaches in Philippians chapter 2. It's the mindset passage. Every Christian is to have the mind of Christ. That is, Christ became a slave for the sake of saving other human beings. Jesus made himself third to save the lost, whom he ranked as second to the glory of God, who was always first. Now, this is the Christian's moral compass. This is to govern everything about our lives as Christians in order to follow Jesus. For the pagan, the moral compass is always quid pro quo. But for the Christian, it is God first, you are second, I am third. Now that's how the people of God are supposed to conduct themselves in the household of God as the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's why last week we said this is the main and comprehensive point in terms of what Paul is saying here and how to think about what Paul is saying here, that since God is first and our neighbor is second, then to serve God and others according to the truth of the gospel, we must willingly take third place, the place of serving God and serving others. And it's this third place perspective that Paul brings to what he says about slavery. Only this moral compass can keep us from conforming to the patterns of this world, and only this moral compass can overcome the patterns of this world. This moral perspective is the way of Christ. It's the only way to solve and resolve the broken relationships that exist among human beings, including not only the problem of slavery, but everything that has tragically conspired and, and transpired in our country uh, since that great and tragic time. So the main points here this morning will first be to describe the yoke of slavery as we see it in the New Testament era, and then to defend this truth that the yoke of slavery is not endorsed by the New Testament. And then thirdly, to declare the story the story of how this yoke was broken, almost. And then sadly, how the yoke returned. So first of all, in terms of the description of the yoke of slavery, again, verse 1, Paul says, Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching would not be reviled. Now, what was this yoke like in the New Testament world? Well, three words in this passage need to be explained. First, the word bondservant. It is literally the, the word, it is the word doulos in Greek, which literally means slave. It's a human being who is considered property that belongs to another person. And the second word here is master. 
the Greek word here is not the common word kurios, by which we would speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as our master, but it's a different word. It, it's the word despotes, from which we get the English word despot. And like the English word despot, Greek scholars point out to how strong this word is in terms of its statement of, a, of authority and power. In fact, they say despot is commonly correlated to doulos to signify absolute ownership, uncontrolled, unrestrained power in that ownership. So a doulos is the slave to the despot who's the master. He has absolute ownership, unlimited power over the slave. And that explains this third word, yoke. The master owns the slave as his property and has unlimited power over his life. That is the yoke that the slave is under. But further, to get a better understanding of the New Testament era of slavery, we need to describe it a bit more. First, we've already said that a slave, in slavery, a person becomes property, treated as property, therefore bought and sold. Slaves were considered as part of the material wealth of a household. Being a slave meant the loss of freedom, meant the loss of self-determination. In the Roman Empire institution, you simply did not have the natural and ordinary freedoms that a Roman citizen or a freedman would have. You couldn't go places on your own. You couldn't make friends. You couldn't get married without the master's permission. Uh, you couldn't travel to other places. You couldn't start a new career. You were a captive person and a person held as property. And in that sense, you were treated as a means to an end, not an end in itself. Your value was not as a person, but as a working piece of property. Uh, your function was service. Your benefit to the master was the work you could do, the economic value you added to his household. You were yoked. You were not free. Doesn't matter how harsh or kind your master was, you were owned as property. Then there's the third thing we need to know. Really important to know about the New Testament era of slavery. What happens during Paul's time and what he writes about is about a century after the great slave revolts that took place earlier. Uh, they were bloody and violent revolts, but they never overturned the institution of slavery because there was no moral revolt in the heart of Roman citizens against the institution of slavery. No one wanted slavery to end except the slaves themselves, and hence the slave revolts. Now, if you remember a little bit of Roman history, the most famous of all these revolts was the one under Spartacus. He raised a formidable army of slaves. He even won a number of military engagements against the Roman army, but it all ended in 71 BC. Uh, he died in battle, and then the Romans showed no mercy toward their surviving 6,000 slaves who lived. They were all crucified at the same time in public view as a warning to all slaves. It was an effective warning. There were no slave revolts after that. That doesn't mean that slaves didn't want their freedom. It just meant there was no way to win freedom by force. And there was also no way to win freedom by moral reform because the moral code within the Roman Empire, the quid pro quo, would never end slavery in any natural or incremental way. Well, the Roman 
while the Greco-Roman philosophers generally all recognized slaves as human beings, Aristotle, for instance, knew that, what most influenced their thinking was the idea that some human beings were simply slaves by nature. They were born to be slaves, and they were better off as slaves. Now, that's the moral and historical world that Paul addresses when he speaks of the yoke of slavery, something deeply, deeply embedded within pagan culture. Now, I want to move on to this second major point here, and that is the yoke of slavery is not endorsed. The yoke of slavery does not have divine endorsement. On this point, there has been an incredible amount of heated debate. But here's the position that I want to argue for and present. The yoke of slavery does not have divine endorsement in the scriptures as a whole, nor in the New Testament specifically. Now, here's my reason for making this claim. In this broken world, God regulates the presence of sin within the human race. He does this by his laws and his teachings, wherever his laws and his teachings go. But laws and teachings do not eliminate the presence of sin. That's the work of the gospel. That's the work of redemption. That's the work of grace, changing people's lives, giving them Christ, and then enabling them to follow the moral compass of Christ. But the laws and teachings do regulate. Now, this principle is broadly stated earlier in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul writes that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. That is, God's law by itself does not eliminate change because it doesn't change human hearts. But nevertheless, God has given his law in order to regulate sinful human behavior. And that leads into my second major point. When we see God-given regulations that apply to sinful institutions, it's wrong to see those regulations as some kind of an endorsement of that sinful institution. In a nutshell, divine regulation is not divine endorsement. The moral regulation of something that is not, the moral regulation of something is not a moral endorsement of that condition or situation in this sinful and broken world. Now in the New Testament, we have three examples of divine regulation of things that are broken and sinful that are not endorsements of those broken practices. And all three involve marriage and family. So the first would be this, divorce. The passage would be Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. That's the passage where Jesus is engaged in a discussion with the Pharisees about the question of marriage and divorce. And Jesus is going to make the very point that regulation is not endorsement. Now, they challenged Jesus with a divorce law that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, when they asked Jesus whether it's lawful to divorce for any reason at all, they will go on to say in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 24, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce 
and to send her away. Now, Jesus responds by stating that Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of the heart of the Jews. In other words, God through Moses, the lawgiver, regulates a sinful practice, but God does not endorse or command the sinful practice. His regulation is not endorsement. Moses regulated divorce by allowing it, but the way Moses regulated divorce actually prohibited the worst practices within divorce. Some of those worst practices were very common among the Jews. And then Jesus, Jesus goes on to say that in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, God designed marriage to be fully permanent. The Pharisees believed that the regulation implied an endorsement, and Jesus denies that it does. Now, a second example of regulation, a regulation that does not imply any endorsement at all, would come from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Remember in chapter 3, we have the qualifications set forth for deacons and for elders, and a specific rule is stated about both of them. Um, they must be the husband of one wife. Now, that rule means that no church officer could ever be a polygamist. There wasn't a lot of polygamy in the New Testament era in the Greco-Roman Empire. However, the existence of polygamy in the wider world, and given the existence of polygamy uh, throughout most of the Old Testament, uh, this particular rule was an important rule to make. No one could be a church leader and have more than one wife. Church leaders were restricted to monogamy, only one wife. In this manner then, polygamy was regulated within the church. Specifically, ordained officers must be monogamous if they're married. But as many people have pointed out, there's no specific prohibition in the New Testament to condemn polygamy outright. All there is is this regulation. And it's been easy for many to claim that overall the Bible doesn't condemn polygamy. Therefore, polygamy isn't wrong. All we have is regulated polygamy. Polygamy still stands. Well, no. We still have the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19, anchored in the creation design. In the beginning, God established marriage as one man, one woman. It's that kind of relationship only. That's the authoritative position of God. So once again, the regulation of a practice in a sinful and broken world does not imply any endorsement of the broken practice. Regulation does not imply endorsement. Now, the third example. In the Roman Empire, the marriage and family structure was not biblical. That structure is known historically as the paterfamilias. Roman families often lived intergenerationally. And in the Roman system of marriage and family, the oldest living male was the pater familias, the father of the family. Now, this position held great legal and moral power. The pater familias was the master of the family. He had absolute rule and legal power over all of his family. That means his grown sons, their wives, his grandchildren, and over all of the domestic slaves. He was the sole owner of all of the family's wealth. His grown sons could not conduct business without his approval. His legal power included life and death. He could abandon his baby children, even put to death older members of the family if they angered him. 
and then short of killing them, if any family member uh, bothered him, he could legally disown them or even sell them into slavery. This is a broken form of marriage and family. Now, even if we see resemblances here to the Old Testament family life, especially among the patriarchs, this absolute power of the paterfamilias was deeply immoral, deeply violating God's design for marriage. It deeply violates Genesis 2.24, where we have Moses writing, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the paterfamilias, the man never left his father and mother, but remained under his father, even under his grandfather, and took his wife into that situation. Once married, the husband and wife would still be subject to the absolute authority of the paterfamilias. So what does Paul do? What does Paul do in light of this very, very broken form of marriage and family within the Roman uh, culture? Well, he gives to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, his central teachings on marriage and on the husband-wife relationship. Paul doesn't attack the broken structure of marriage and family directly. Instead, Paul regulates what is broken. And this is what Paul does. First, he calls both the husband and the wife to the I am third moral code of conduct. Wives, treat your husbands in such a manner that Christ is first, your husband is second, and you are third. Husbands, treat your wives in such a manner that Christ is first, your wife is second, and you are third. And then Paul quotes the creation design from Genesis 2.25. Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, Paul restates the creation design of marriage, which stands in great contrast to the paterfamilias form of marriage. And then further, Paul identifies the creation form of the marriage relationship with the Christ and Christ church relationship. And this symbolic identification gives the creation design of marriage the authority that far outstrips the paterfamilias design of marriage. So Paul is saying to Christians, this is what marriage should look like. And this is how Paul regulates something that is very broken. But again, regulation does not mean endorsing. Paul regulates how to live within a very sinful structure, the paterfamilias, but this in no way is an endorsement of the Roman institution. Now, a third reason why regulation does not imply endorsement. As I mentioned earlier, we live in a sinful world. God must regulate all kinds of sinful institutions and sinful practices by his word. And so before we jump to the conclusion that God is endorsing something, we must examine whether the practice we're looking at actually fits God's creation design for human beings. So apply this to slavery. Is the institution of slavery a part of the design of creation? Did God create human beings with a design and intention that in his original and sinless world, some human beings would become the slaves to others? 
that some human beings will be owned by others? The clear answer is no. Slavery exists because of Genesis 3 and the fall. Slavery is part of the fallen human condition. Slavery is part of the sinfulness of humankind. Slavery is the utter breaking of the divine creation of human beings in the image of God and the divine ordinance of work itself. So although Paul clearly teaches the regulation of the slave and master relationship, it is simply wrong to imply that this regulation implies any kind of endorsement. But further, there are anti-slavery statements in the New Testament itself, several of them. Let me quickly mention four. If we go back to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verses 9 and 10, in that passage, Paul specifically says that slave trading is wrong. In verse 10, the sexually immoral men who practice homes homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The word enslavers means those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. That's your ESV footnote explanation. But also uh, Greek word experts say it includes those who are slave dealers, not just someone who steals someone to sell to another, but the slave dealer himself, the person who actually brings slaves to the market to sell them. Now, also remember that where enslavers is mentioned falls within Paul's listing of sins, which are strong echoes. The order is a strong echo of the Ten Commandments. And that places enslavers in the very slot that we would find the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Now, what this does is to highlight that enslaving another human being is to treat that human being like property. It's to steal their freedom. It's to steal their labor. It's to steal from them virtually everything except stealing their life. Now, the fact that Paul is actually using the Ten Commandments as a template for listing out the kinds of sins that God established the law for, the kinds of things that God must regulate by his law and by his teachings, we remember that these Ten Commandments summarized by Jesus in terms of the first and second greatest commandments. So the summary of all the commandments, first of all, mean to love God supremely, and then secondly, to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. But to steal another person's freedom, to steal another person's work, uh, to steal them in such a way that you treat him as property, and you hold him in that condition, how is this not intrinsically opposite to loving your neighbor as you would love yourself? And then thirdly, reducing someone to slavery treats that person as if he has no value as a person, as he has no value as someone who's actually created in the image of God. He only has the value of property like the value of an animal, a work animal on a farm. His value and, and worth are only in his function, but not in who he is. And that, again, breaks the second greatest commandment. But also, in slavery, there is a denial to the one who works his just wages. Remember when Paul writes about elders. Uh, Paul says that it's a principle of justice and a principle of the work 
uh, principle of justice that laborers deserve their wages. But in slavery, the laborer doesn't receive his wages. Uh, they go to his master. Everything he does belongs to his master. So there's no way to reconcile the institution of slavery to God's original design, particularly how the laborer is worthy of his wages. And fourthly, the New Testament is against slavery in terms of the matter of one's calling in life. First Corinthians chapter 7, 20 to 23, Paul writes, each one should, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. As slavery had the divine endorsement, then choosing to become the slave of men would not be prohibited. It's terrifically clear that Paul says, do not freely choose to become the slave of any man. The New Testament does not endorse the institution of slavery. Regulation is not endorsement. Now, finally, the breaking of the yoke. You know, in the history of Western civilization, the practice of slavery became less and less in every place that Christianity penetrated. Everywhere that the biblical view of the human race prevailed and everywhere it was seen that all human beings are created in the image of God and everywhere that it was recognized that slavery, no matter how ancient, no matter how widely practiced in all former civilizations, was a product of man's rebellion against God. Everywhere it was accepted that Christ came to set us free, to free from free from sin and free to love and care fully for other human beings everywhere that the Christian understanding of human beings penetrated into how human beings are supposed to see each other, slavery became less and less acceptable. And the result, the church and Christianized Western civilization slowly, but with a certain trajectory, began to reject slavery and to make it unlawful and to bring it to an end. Over the history of the church, the greater number of Christian theologians from the early church through the Reformation era, through all the way through uh, the 1500s, they, uh, they opposed the enslavement of human beings. And even those who did not, who never accept, they never accepted the idea that, that human beings could ever be just property. They insisted that slaves must be treated as full human beings, not subject to any cruelty, cruelty of treatment. Nevertheless, slavery was eventually outlawed. By 1102, a, a London church council outlawed slavery in the slave trade. By the end of the 1300s, Europe had essentially ceased to practice slavery. And then over the next 400 years, the Christian perspective continued to have a deep influence, even in the secular minds of Enlightenment philosophers. The most prominent, Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, Mill, they agree that human beings were born to be free by nature. Kant argued that freedom belonged to every human being simply by virtue of his humanity. Kant wrote, there is indeed an innate equality belonging to every man, which consists in his right to be independent 
of being bound to others, in virtue of which he ought to be his own master by right. The point is, during the New Testament era, the view of the view of Aristotle was accepted as the norm. Some people were simply born to be slaves by nature. Slavery was a natural institution. But by the 17th and 18th century, the best enlightenment thinkers were now in agreement with the majority Christian perspective that slavery was not natural and that slavery was inherently wrong. The yoke of slavery was broken, almost, but not quite. And what happened is a terrible, terrible tragedy. The yoke of slavery was reinstituted. The great tragedy here is that ancient slavery was grounded in a pagan view of human beings. But now slavery is reinstituted and accepted within Christendom it's not opposed or condemned by any kind of a united voice, whether Protestant or Catholic. So the British forgot their London Church Council decision of 1102 that abolished slavery and the slave trade. Instead, they revived both in the 17th century. English slave traders bought slaves from Africa and sold them to the colonies in the British West Indies and to the America and to Canada. And the Portuguese and the Spain, they did likewise for their colonies in Brazil and Central America and South America. And that brings us to the American tragedy, something that is historically very, very complex. But what ought to concern us Christians is how the church in America as a whole, the church was not a voice protesting what was going on. And here, pro-slavery arguments played a huge role. It made the institution of slavery appear biblically permissible. I'm not talking here of the bad arguments that Africans were under the curse of Ham or the scientific racism arguments that claimed Africans were less developed than Europeans. We're talking about things that persuaded some of the best Christian thinkers who argued that the New Testament's regulation of slavery was equal to an endorsement of slavery. This idea was stated very, very strongly. If it was inherently wrong to own slaves, then Paul would have boldly condemned it and ordered all Christian masters to set them free. But, the argument goes, what we see rather is this. The worst elements of slavery are regulated but Christ and the apostles left the institution of slavery untouched. And therefore, slavery is not unlawful. Regulation implies endorsement. Therefore, the law of the land should not oppose or outlaw slavery, but only regulate it to make it more humane. And this is what the shepherds of the church were teaching. And this is why it was so very hard for Christian slave owners as Christians to believe that what they were doing was wrong. The truth is, the theologians and shepherds of the church should have known better. The greater sin falls upon the theologians and shepherds of the church who did not unite their voices 
in opposition to the slave institution. These learned men knew that earlier Christian history had virtually closed the door on slavery. These learned men also had the contemporary writings of Enlightenment philosophers who took their anti-slavery positions from the idea that all human beings are inherently equal, who essentially agreed with the Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The learned leadership of the churches in the South, with the help from learned leadership in the North, were arguing for and teaching a position that had been rejected by the church through most of its history as incompatible with the Bible's true doctrine of human beings. The learned leaders of the church tragically took up a position and held it dogmatically that only made sense on pagan ideas about human beings. That sure, all human beings are human beings, but not all human beings are born to be equal. Some are born to be ruled and some are born to be their rulers. Now, the South then lost two wars. It lost the military war, but it also lost the moral war. The hearts of far too many white Americans never morally embraced their sin of their unjust treatment of African Americans. They never felt the obligation to love their black neighbors as they love themselves. They never opposed the Jim Crow laws put in place to restrict black Americans from what every white American in the South naturally enjoyed. The voice of the church was silent. You know, during the civil rights era, it was often remarked that even 100 years after the Civil War across the South and in most places in the United States, the most segregated hour was the hour of Sunday morning worship. And even today, 50 years later, this remains much the same. So let me bring this to where we are now. The legacy of slavery has deeply exposed the disobedience of the church in America. In the eyes of the secular world, the name of God and the teaching of the gospel are reviled. We can't undo and we can't mitigate the history of the church's deep failure to be salt and light, the deep sin of allowing the yoke of slavery to be introduced, reintroduced, where the light of the gospel had almost closed the door. The deep failure to oppose everything that was put in the way of African-Americans having the full rights of American citizens, the full acceptance into the Christian church as the one family of God, we have to own that as the church in America because it's the sad legacy of the church, not of every Christian and not of every church, but still the legacy of far too many churches and far too many who call themselves Christians. So what then are we to do? C.S. Lewis wrote these words. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And although this seems to be highly simplistic, 
it is nonetheless true. The starting place today and every day forward is to live as Jesus showed us how to live in this broken world. God must always be of first importance. We must love him above all else. Our neighbor and other human beings must always be of second importance. We must love them as we love ourselves. And that makes us third. Just as Christ was the slave who gave himself as a ransom for many, we are called to take that same role in third place. We are called to love and care all other human beings, to serve all others in this world. And this is the moral compass that comes with our faith in Jesus, by which the gospel has changed lives and even changed cultures. And by the grace of God and the help of Jesus, this is where we start in order to change the ending. Amen. Father, give us the grace to deeply lament and to deeply repent of a very sad legacy and to determine within our own lives that we will be what you have called us to be as Christians. Those who truly deny ourselves in order that we may love you fully and love others as we would love ourselves and then to take third place. And in any way, in every way we can to regard every other human being as deserving of full dignity that we might serve and love and care in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. And really as a final prayer this morning, hymn number 559 sets the course for how to follow the moral compass that God has given to us. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. In service which thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. My secret heart is taught the truth that makes thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. Now receive now these final words as we go forth into this world to please our Lord Jesus. Be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.